We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kernin. We've got a new feature for the podcast. We've teamed up with World Strides Excel, who are the industry leaders in international soccer tours with over 15 years experience delivering soccer tours for a wide range of clientele, including the University of Maryland men's team, the 2017 national champions on the women's side, Stanford. So how it works, you pick a country or countries and their soccer experts customise a trip, which includes competitive matches, training sessions with international coaches, tickets to professional matches, sightseeing and much more. They then work to provide a level of quality support and service, which includes financial assistance, liability coverage, flights, hassle-free travel, easy registration and parents. So we're not only partnering with World Strides Excel for a series of these podcasts, but we're also working alongside them to organize a modern soccer coach tour to Barcelona on February 6th to February 12th. Uh, The trip will feature a clinic with the Catalan Football Federation, full-day visits to Espanol, Nadesh Taranoga academies, as well as a game or two, and of course a trip to the new camp. So really excited about that. I haven't been to Spain for for a football trip, and it's definitely on my bucket list, and I want to do it, of course, in a coach development capacity as well and I want to take a few coaches along with me and have a week's trip, meet some people, get a good experience and connect with a few top coaches as well. So really excited about that. So I'll have more details about the tour coming up. So these podcasts with World Strides Excel, there are a series of them. The common theme is culture and looking at a variety of topics, basically how do we define culture, what drives it, how do we impact it, Can we look outside our own cultures and take on different viewpoints, different ideas, different ways of working, look at different countries, look at coaches who are working in different countries, what are they learning, the importance of travel, the importance of expanding your horizons as a coach, the importance of testing your theories and going outside your comfort zone, all that good stuff. So basically promoting a message of learning and being open-minded. So no better man to kick us off for the first podcast and that's Tom Byer. So Tom is originally from New York. He moved to Japan after his playing career finished here in the US. He started his own academy, T3, and then developed a multimedia platform for delivery of specific programs and curriculums for youth development across the entire Asian region. You need to hear about how he did this. Absolutely amazing. He became a cult hero in Japan and then over the past 20 years Tom has conducted events in more than 2,000 locations with over half a million children participating. Adidas honoured Tom with the Golden Boot Award which he accepted in France after the World Cup draw in 1998 for his contribution to youth soccer in Asia and he remains the only youth coach to have received this prestigious award. So he's got experience around the world in skill development models and you're going to love how passionate he is about delivering it and just the ways that he's done that there. So we talk about his football starts at home philosophy, how he found unique ways to communicate this philosophy, how he created then different ways to evolve it, bring it to other countries and then how he defends it from criticism in today's world, especially online where everyone's got an opinion and everyone is quick to judge and slam. So I wanted to ask him about that there. So a lot of angles here for coaches, philosophy, creativity, resilience, communication, problem solving. You're going to love Tom's insight, his experience and, and, and where he challenges coaches to think and where he challenges cultures and federations to do the same. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, let me know what you think, as always. 
on Instagram at Gary Kernin, on Twitter at Gary Kernin. If you want to shoot me an email, gary at modernsoccercoach.com. Big thanks to Tom for taking part in this. Again, please, please, please spread word about the podcast. Let me know what you think. I had a massive response to the, the Michael Beale and the Dan Machichi podcast. It meant a lot just to hear about what people got from it, what they learned from it, what kind of struck chords in different people. And, and I always love hearing uh, because it's just sometimes it's different from for different coaches what they pick up on. So please continue to spread the word. It means a lot. Uh, here's Tom and enjoy. Tom, thanks so much for joining me uh, tonight, your time in the Modern Soccer Coach podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here, Gary. It's uh, 10 o'clock in the evening Tokyo time, so uh, it's uh, no better time to chat. To kick it off, you, your approach to, to skill development, youth development, has been mm-hmm. in large part to equip parents at the early development stage. Um, many, many coaches would find that uncomfortable. Can you, can you talk me through why it shouldn't be? Sure. Well, I guess there's kind of, you know, there's a couple of different stages of my career. Um, I used to be focused purely on teaching the technical skills to children directly. And when I say children, I work in the space of under 12 or, uh, you know, six to 12 years of age. Um, in Japan, we call that, you know, it's the elementary school level. Um, so I have much experience working in that area um, for many years and also coaches education as well. But it wasn't until 2006 that I started to have a, a 2006 and, 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 and after that, that I started to have a rethink on development because this was based on um, getting married and having my own children and kind of figuring out that, uh, that the role that the parent plays in football development seems to be extremely important. Um, and, and that's where I basically took on this whole kind of new concept and started studying. Well, you know, out of 211 member associations in FIFA, why is there only a handful that have won World Cup championships? And out of that, there's, there's only eight. And then out of those eight countries, there's really only kind of a couple that are serial repeat winners. So I started really studying. Um, what was happening in those countries that seemed to be producing the best players, the best teams. And it kept kind of circling back, hitting me in the head, that it, it appeared that there was no real kind of specific or special training or coaching going on that doesn't happen in most countries. But what I found was is that those countries' cultures were very conducive to developing players. So what what I mean is is that if you look at a specifically a lot of the Latin countries, a Latin child will be exposed to a football from a much earlier age than other kids are. Um, and then I started kind of, you know, connecting the dots by looking backwards and also figuring out that when I started reading a lot of these national curriculums that are written by the more kind of developing type of countries that are trying to develop, I started to realize that the first time a child came on the radar screen for a national federation was usually between the ages of six and nine. They call it the, the discovery phase. And they build the attributes of, of a six to nine-year-old, which they say lack of motor skills, short attention span, clumsy. So what they, what they propose is or suggest is, is that you just let the, the kids play fun games related to football. So I started to think that this is a pro- This is right here is where the problem begins because kids aren't being exposed to football. Um, well, let's put it this way: the, the reverse. Kids are being exposed to football from a much earlier age um, because you have a more engaged, more educated parent in some of these footballing cultures of the world. And I found that that's a, that gives the child a tremendous head start and accelerated develop, uh, learning when before that child crosses over the line into organized practice play, which is six years of age, first grade, if he or she has some technical com- competency already where they can stop, start, turn, change direction with the ball and protect it, to me, that was just a whole game changer. Um, and I, and, I, start, and I, start, I started to see that play out with my own children as well 
Um, and that's where now I've basically devoted the, the later, the latter part of my career now, um, to trying to engage and educate parents of children between the ages of two, to th two from two to three years old to six years old. Um, and I find that that's a game changer. Long-term strategic planning is, mm. is almost the ultimate challenge for any soccer culture. Like we, 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 we think as a soccer com coaching community too much in the short term. So going from a, a two-year-old is the ultimate, the ultimate test of that there. I was curious, what's the biggest resistance to your philosophy? Is it, is it our short-termism? Is it win at all costs? Is it closed-minded coaches? What's your challenges there? Well, well, there's a lot of different challenges, but what I find is, is that, and I, I coined the phrase based after the book that I wrote and researched called Football Starts at Home. This idea of engaging parents of very, very small kids, this can only happen in the context of a family, not in the context of a, of a club. Um, so you've you got to realize, I mean, kids don't exist in the eyes of federations and clubs until around the age of six or seven years of age. So what we're advocating is, is, is that to ensure that the entry level of children, before they cross over that line into organized play, can they have some degree of technical ability? Because the reality is, is that this is a sport that unfortunately takes a ridiculous amount of practice to become good at it. And, you know, the, the other reality is, is that we, we like to call this sport the world game. But I challenge and I maintain that a majority of children who play football or soccer worldwide are technically poor. That's the reality of it. They're technically poor. So they're not good enough. And when you, again, start connecting the dots by looking backwards and you see these alarming numbers of children who drop out, like, for example, in the United States, 38.5% of kids that play soccer in America, they quit by the age of seven. Another 50% drops off by the age of 10. So uh, what I'm saying is I don't necessarily agree that it's a coaching problem. I think that in many, co in many countries, we have enough qualified coaches and enough good coaches. You can always have better coaches, right? And you can always have more coaches. But I maintain that's not what the problem is. That that's not, there's not better coaching of children. Again, we're talking about children. There's not better coaching of children in Brazil or Uruguay or Chile or in Spain or that, that is any different than in the United States or in many other countries in the world. I challenge that. Mm -hmm. So I'm asking people to think a little bit differently now. And think, well, what is the main problem? You look at, again, a country I keep referring to America because that's my home country. But we've got half the population of Europe. Where are the players? Where are the special players? Because millions and millions of kids play. But what I say is, is football doesn't start at home in America. It starts out on a pitch a little bit later, seven years of age, maybe eight years of age. Um, and, and, and what I find with my, it, it's interesting, Gary, cause what happened was the, I, I'll keep it short, but the long story was, is that in 2006, I was doing an event for Adidas, who I'm the football ambassador for them in Japan and China here. And I was, it was a World Cup year, 2006. And after the event, I was signing these little miniature footballs, the replica ball for the 2006 German World Cup. And I was signing the balls and giving them away for Adidas to kid, a couple kids. And the, the proverbial ball or light ball, you know, like apple fell right in my lap. While I was holding that little ball, I thought, wow, small ball. And my first son had just started walking. So I asked the Adidas guys, could they send me a few of these balls to my house? So a big box arrives in my house with about 20 balls in it. And I took two or three of these little tiny balls and I put them in all of the rooms of my house. And from day one, when my boy stood up to address the ball, I would discourage him from kicking it, and I would encourage him to just play with it, to ma manipulate it, to master it, to pull it back with the right foot, pull it back with the left foot, uh, run after it, and just pull it back and let the ball glide back and forth, and then you know, t showing and modeling different things to do and to protect the ball. And that was a game changer for, for my son. Now, fast, and what I did was I documented the development of not just one son, but I've got two boys now, 9 and 12 years old. And they're just technically genius, and, that, and, and I say that with pride, but it's the reality. My kids, both of them are two-footed. Both of them were engaged very early with the ball. You can see that the more engaged a child is early on, the more fun they have. The more fun they have, the more they want to practice. The more they practice, the more they become better. And it keeps circling around. And I say this is what's happening in some of these footballing cultures of the world, 
that's happening in a natural environment that people haven't been real good at explaining why some of these countries are developing such great players. And again, it just, for me, it comes down to the culture. You know, there's a culture at home that's conducive to developing football players. Or if you look at any child that does well academically, there's usually a culture at home that values education. And it comes down to the parents for me. Yeah, I'm fascinated by this because you've got the technical component there, albeit uh, little drag backs instead of kicking it. So there's, there's technical yes. instruction that you're having, but you're also, I would guess you're doing that in a way that there's enthusiasm, there's love, there's passion. As a coach, again, I'm trying to get you to knock me out of my comfort zone. I would sure. be, I would have no problem in empowering the, the, the parents of the U.S. in teaching and going away from the kicking it to moving yes. towards drag backs, caressing the ball, falling yes. in love with the ball, or where I'm out, where I'm uncomfortable, I should say, mm. is mm. is does that add then more pressure? Does that empower the parent to say, well, I'm putting time in here? And does the kid eventually say, "Ah, oh, listen, Dad's a lunatic here. He's putting too much." But I'm going to, I'm going to quit anyway. Yeah. Now I don't think. So. At least I can only speak from my own experience, and I can speak speak from people that I've imparted this um, knowledge with that send me letters and send me videos of their own kids. Um, you know, first of all, when you see the relationship and the dependency and the influence that a small that a child that a parent has on a small child. First of all, that's just a completely different level. When a child is able to experiment in a very safe environment, which is basically at home or with a parent, um, that's, a di- that's a different level as well. When you can unlock that ability or that emotion, emotion of learning, and the child can create what we call that free will, where they think they own their own free time and they own their own fun, that, that's a game changer. That's a game changer. Now, yeah, if you put it in the context of, yeah, you know, does the parent pull the kid out every day with a bullwhip and tell them to practice? Yeah, of course we're not advocating that. But let me tell you, Gary, you know, I'm I'm 57 years old now, and when we had our first boy, I was 46. And I learned so many things because I was always working with other people's kids. But then you realize when you have a small infant or you have a child that's one, two, three, or four years of age – they spend a majority of their time inside, inside the house. It's a ridiculous amount of time because you have to have an adult and you can't let the child out of the line of sight. And I hadn't realized that because I'd always been working with other people's kids. And I started to see the amount of time that parents spend waiting for the child to crawl, then waiting for the child to stand, and then waiting for the child to walk, and then waiting for the child to talk. You put an enormous amount of t- investing time into your children. And all I did was I made that ball part of the the environment. And when I saw the learning curve of how quickly my son was able to do things, and I saw the interest level of the ball and the uh, desire to want to engage with the ball constantly. Now, to this day, fast forward, both of my boys, I mean, they practice. I mean, if anything, we have to have a problem and try to get them to, to, to not practice as much as they want to because they've basically fallen in love with the ball. And, you know, I was doing a series. I just filmed a series down in Australia for Optus, which is the cell phone company in Australia. And they, they paid a lot of money for the World Cup rights, broadcast rights, along with the Premier League uh, rights as well. And I filmed a special series focused around 11 players. Okay. I, and I studied these 11 players. And the whole um, focus of this corner was I found 11 players. All of them had started early engagement with a ball between the ages of two and five years of age. And all of these players basically credited their father and sometimes their mother with their development. Okay, and we filmed, uh, we, we, we filmed a series around these 11. You know who those 11 are? Messi, Ronaldo, Suarez, Neymar, Pogba, Iniesta, Modric, Cruz, uh, Lewandowski, uh, Eden Hazard. So it's just, it, it was as clear as the nose on the end of my face. These great players were the result of very early engagement and, 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 and uh, uh, basically uh, the influence of the parents. So if you understand that, then you might want to put a strategy in place of maybe trying to engage the parents because what happens around the world, at least in my part of the world here in Asia, 
where we have 47 member association countries, everybody thinks that it's automatically a coaching problem. Now we gotta hire, we gotta hire more coaches. We, we've gotta have more coaches education. We have to devise more elite player pathways. We have to build more facilities. And they all believe this. And, but when you look again at the results, it's the same countries every time that develop the best players. You know, I mean, we'll see, we'll see what it's interesting because we have a World Cup going on right now. But my, my, my guess is, is history's on my side that probably the two teams that are going to play in the final are probably previous World Cup champions again, you know. And they seem to have this lock on, uh, on developing football players. And again, I don't think they're doing anything specific or special, maybe with the exception of Germany. To me, out of all the countries I've studied, they're a bit of an outlier country because they do just about everything pretty good <laughs> and everything that they do. But for me, developing players, I know now, if I want to start putting a strategy in place to develop players in a certain area, the first thing I'm doing first of it is basically I'm engaging parents with the very, very young children. To me, that's the, that's the game changer. I'm fascinated by, first of all, your idea, the idea to go lower in the development in terms of the, and earlier in the development. Um, yeah. But also in, in terms of your way of transporting that from idea to theory or theory yeah. to practice, you used in Japan 13 years on a, on a children's TV show and a comic book. Um, yeah. How did that idea or what were the inspiration in terms of your creativity sure. to get that through? Sure. Well, what it was is that, you know, I'd come up with this. Um, I, I was convinced through my good friend, Paul Mariner, former striker of England, who's one of my closest friends and dear friends who I almost talk to almost on a daily basis. Paul had a huge influence on me um, to become and focus on technical skills um, back in the early 19, late 1980s, early 1990s. So in Japan here, what we did, and not to be confused, because we, I'm not talking about, we, we never implemented that, that uh, strategy of football starts at home by engaging parents and very, very young kids. This is kind of my, you know, part two, so to speak, of what I'm doing. But in the past, I purely focused on technical skills. So what I did was I wanted to create as many delivery channels as possible to develop the message in Japan, which was, if you want to be a good football player, it all starts with the technical component. So, again, a little bit of luck because I was casted on Japan's number one television show for children back in 1998, which was, um, interestingly enough, the first time that Japan qualified for the World Cup. And this was a TV show that's not a football show. It's a pop culture show that was produced by the producers of Pokemon. So it's on every weekday morning, Monday through Friday, early in the morning before the kids go to school. It's hugely popular, number one show for kids. And I basically devised a one-point technical lesson, one player, one ball, um, that I presented every weekday morning. Now, the interesting thing is, is that when I started this show, I didn't have any idea how long it was going to last, but I had the corner. It went for 14 years every single day. And then that coupled with it, um, there's a comic book called the Koro Koro Comic, which is Japan's number one um, c comic book. And basically, ba basic, basically, I um, was focused in this comic book for for 13 or 14 years as well. It was kind of a set, same, same producers of the TV show. So here, and it's got 1.3 million copies per month. So here now we're delivering these um, different drills through comic, through pop culture. You've got it on TV. We're doing events throughout the whole country. Um, we created and, and, and established uh, football schools throughout the country. Um, doing camps, creating content such as DVDs or back in the olden days, VHS video. Also um, carved out um, a niche corner for the biggest football magazine here in Japan called Soccer Digest. So we've got all of these touch points. And, you know, we're using media. Well, even today you can do it even much more, bigger because the implications of social media. But we're able to deliver our message to so many, you know, not thousands of people, but millions of people. Um, so that's where I say now when I work with countries and I work with the Chinese government, I work with the Indian government, I work with the Indonesian government. I tell them that if you really want to have a strategy, a grassroots strategy, you need a media component because you need to be speaking to the masses. But it's important. What is that message? Because if you've got the wrong message, you know, 
when you put a, a grassroots football strategy in place, you usually need about 10 years to see whether it works or not. And then at the end of the 10 years, if it doesn't work, then you're stuck with another cycle of 10 years. So I maintain this is what's happening in many countries in the world. Many of them don't have the right strategy in place. So it's almost tantamount to being on this kind of endless treadmill to nowhere. And it just keeps going around and around and around. Yeah, I think that's genius, that, that finding the delivery mechanism that you call and, and moving it. Would, would I be wrong to assume that the best delivery mechanism in the U.S. would be phones? Yes. Well, now, you know, it, it changes, Gary. That's the thing. I mean, it's, you know, it's the changing times here. It's, um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've been involved in the analog way of delivering it, um, which was through television in the olden days. Um, nowadays, I know this because my own kids, I've got a nine and a 12 year old. My kids don't watch regular traditional TV. They come home, they put the Sony PlayStation on and then they watch YouTube. Um, so, you know, and they look, they, you know, they're digital natives, right? So they look at, uh, at, um, iPads, they look at, you know, iPhones, they look at, you know, like I said, YouTube, um, and things like that. So it's basically creating different strategies and, and, and different, um, delivery mechanisms, um, to deliver your message, but you have to make sure that you got the right message, right? Um, but in, this, you know, in the States, it could be anything. It could be a media partner um, on traditional television. It could be, you know, a cell phone company or it could be a sponsor of football, a brand um, that basically, you know, is involved in football already and they have some kind of rights. So it's, a, it's, not, it's, it's not really kind of one silver bullet, but it's basically figuring out what works in your market and localizing it. All right, let's talk about the Japanese culture. What are the unique areas that that you embraced or that helped you understand or, or accelerate player development? I think in Japan, the key is, is that the culture um, is very disciplined. Um, it's very systematic. Um, it, the culture allows for young children to practice a lot. And I can just give you kind of stories of of my own kids. The first time a child in most countries gives into organized football is at the age of six, which is first grade. Well, here in Japan, my boys, once they crossed over that line into organized play, um, every Tuesday, they practice from 4.30 to 7 o'clock at night. Every Thursday, 4.30 to 7 o'clock at night. Every Saturday, they practice from 4 to 7 o'clock at night. And then on Sundays, they play games. And they could play games on Saturday as well. Now, that's a lot of football for a six or seven-year-old. And, and here's the kicker. There's no on-off season. They play 52 weeks a year. So this is one of those unique, unique cultural aspects of Japan. You know, if you wanted to train a little six- or seven-year-old four times a week for 52 weeks a year in America, they'd put you in jail. You know, so, so, so different, different cultures accept certain things and practices. So, you know, in, in, in Japan here, because they play all year round, um, it, and, and also you got to realize that it, depending upon where you live is going to depend upon the quality of the coaching you're going to have. Right. So for example, again, using a real life experience, my boys, when my first boy crossed over that line in the organized play. He joined his club that's right down the street from here, from where we live, um, and and his first coach, and his only coach up until now, was not a football person. It was a volunteer father who comes from the rugby world that's never played football and never coached football. So at first, I was pulling my hair out, thinking, "Wow, I can't believe this. I've been in Japan thirty years. I'm the guy on television. I'm the technical guy. I'm you know known around the country." And my son get stuck playing at a team where there's no football coach. It's a rugby coach. And again, there's that, you know, you basically, depending upon where you live, depend upon the quality of the coaching you have. So it's no different for other people as well. And who am I to take my kid out of the class or the club with all his buddies? It's convenient down the street just because I don't like the coach. So it's funny because in the beginning I was pulling my hair out, but then it's so funny because he's had the same coach from first grade to sixth grade. And it, Gary, this is really interesting insight. Only recently, or at least the last couple of years, I realized that he was in the best environment. You know why? Because here's the formula. When the kid crosses over the line into organized play, if he or she is very good technically and they're paired with an inexperienced coach, that kid will actually thrive. That kid will do okay. 
That's where that whole idea of just let him play the games of teacher, that actually works. Do you know why? Because he doesn't get overcoached. Mm. Now, here's the other formula. The kid that crosses over the line into organized play that has absolutely no technical competency whatsoever, and then there they are partnered or they're paired up with an inexperienced coach, and that's where the problem is. And that's where you see where a lot of kids don't develop because they didn't have that basic foundation from the beginning because I've seen this play through now, Gary, for six years. My son's entry level into the team he was head and shoulders better than the rest of the kids there were two or three kids that were pretty good as well and i found out later their dads were players so there's that link and then the other 15 or 16 kids had never played before and between first grade and sixth grade you don't see a huge curve of development and 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 now fast forward after six years and they they graduate from elementary school go into junior high school a majority of those kids those 14 or 15 kids have not continued on. So those kids make up that, you know, in America would be that 38 or that 50% that drop off by the age of 10 or 11. So I, I see clearly the dots. I see where we're going wrong in football development. Again, it keeps coming down to that word of, of culture. But getting back to Japan, Japan is a, a very disciplined country. They practice too much. They overpractice. Um, it's very systematic. They... Have, you know, teaching and learning is at the core of Japanese culture and education. Um, and, you know, when we have other foreign coaches come here, they usually go away saying this is one of the best places they've ever coached because it's a, it's a pleasurable place and a very good environment to coach children. So that was obviously very conducive to, you know, a, a, a being able to adapt this approach of, of focusing on technical skill development. Because, again, also, if you look at the characteristic of Japanese players, they're not very, you know, huge or strong or powerful. Um, but I think that it's pretty well known that if you talk about Japanese players, either on, either on the men's side or the women's side, most people agree that the first characteristic that pops up is that they're very good technically. And I think, you know, we've, had, we've definitely had a, a hand in trying to facilitate that. Yeah, for sure. I've I've experienced that firsthand, and then on the on the overcoach topic. So I'm we've got a player here in Chicago, Yuki Nagasato. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, she's a very good friend of mine. Oh she, wow. Okay, so so she basically, the first time I met them, soccer football started home for her. Uh, her sister's professional player. Her brother's a professional player. Her father was her first coach. I know the whole family. They've been to my uh, my coaching events when they were little children. Brilliant. I know you can, yeah. Yeah, yeah she's a star. So I'll, I'll talk to her about that today for sure. But yeah. I'm going to say is just how they see the game. She told me that her, her youth soccer career, her team met after every practice and watched a video of the yep. session again. So I yeah. asked her, I said, So, what, you know, did the coach make you guys do that? She just looked at me like a two heads. She said, What, <laughs> what, did, what did we need a coach for? So, yeah. like, are, yeah. are we just too reliant on coaches in the US, Tom? Yeah, Gary, I think, again, it's culture, you know. I mean, you know, my little kids at six years of age, first grade, they walk out of the school, they walk out of the house in the morning and they walk to school by themselves, right? So you've got a different culture in place that, you know, creates different characteristics, different personalities, different traits for, for children and, and adults. Um, and that's one of them, you know. I mean, kids are very, very, they grow up in a very safe environment. That's the other thing. So, I mean, you know, kids can go out in the park and play football here and you don't have to be in fear that, you know, they're, they're not going to come home when they're supposed to come home. So, you know, there's a lot of pluses. Um, and, of course, there's always minuses as well um, in every culture or society. Um, but in Japan, um, this does seem to be a place where technical skill development seems to thrive. Yeah, and then you're talking about the detail that, that she puts in her game. And I see her after... She finds 15 minutes before. She finds 20 minutes after every session. But when you go uh -huh. and talk to her and say, what, what are you working on today, Yuki? She'll say, she'll tell you the exact type of shot on the exact type of angle that she's trying to do. And that detail is just, it's non-existent. At any level, you're, you're, you're saying, well, what do you, they just go out with a bag of balls, shoot straight down the goal. So, well, you, 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 you got to understand too, like a girl like Yuki, where she comes from, she turned professional probably at a very young age, teenage years. I think he maybe even uh, as early as 14 or 15 years of age. 
Um, she played in probably the Nadesco League, which is the, the ladies' league here. So she, and she's a bit of an outlier as well, though, because she's a much more cultured girl. She speaks German. She speaks English, Japanese, of course. She's, she's played in Germany. She's played at, I think she was at Chelsea. Um, she's played around the world. So she's much, she's much more international. But yeah, you can see very, very disciplined, very focused, uh, very detailed. And these are the attributes of Japanese players, you know, it's to basically master their, their, you know, their trade, so to speak. Um, and they spend a, a, a ridiculous amount of time and a lot of serious time um, trying to become better because it's in that kind of Buddhist culture of, of wanting to learn more and wanting to become your best and never being satisfied that you've finally reached that, you know, that point where, where you can say that you've kind of made it or you've mastered something. And again, you know, getting back to the question, Gary, that you asked me, you know, what's so different about Japan? So these are some of the things that are are surely stand out to, to my mind. Whenever then you go to, you're hired by a Chinese Ministry of Education to yeah. scale up their development in yeah. their schools. What's the differences between China and Japan or what's the unique aspects there? Yeah, there's, there's, there's a bunch of them. Um, first thing that pops to mind is that in China for the last few decades, they've had what's called the one-child policy. So families only have one child. And what happened was is that parents looked at sport, sports and football as a distraction to education. So they basically feared kids playing sports and they were going to get injured. And, you know, if you've only got one child then that child has to be successful academically because that child is going to have to take care of, you know, both sets of grandparents. So there's a lot of pressure on kids to do well academically and make money um, to climb out of that socioeconomical, you know, uh, level that they're at, right? So that, that's one. The second biggest challenge is as well is that the structure in the organization is completely different than Japan. Until the age of 12 in Japan, uh, everything in football is organized, it's a Japanese word, by the Shonendan, which is basically the under-12 association, which falls under the umbrella of the JFA. Now, it sounds a bit weird, but follow me. Kids like my child plays at a school. The name of the team is named after the school, Oyamadai Elementary School. But it, other than the name and other that they practice at the elementary school, it's got no connection to the school. So it's a completely private club, non-profit club, that's run by volunteers, okay, if you can follow me, mm -hmm. because this is a big, big difference in China. Now, in China, no, when you play for a team, you're playing for the school team. You play for the school team, and you're not going to have a coach usually that's coming from outside, and it's not going to be a volunteer. It's going to be a school teacher. Um, or maybe it could be a hired, but there's a big distinct difference. And you're usually not going to play football outside of your, outside of your environment, inside your school. Um, whereas here, it's just, it's just completely different mindset. The club versus being organized by the school. So that's, that's much, much different as well because you find in the club system, you'll have a better level of coach, um, from the community. Um, that may have participated in that club years ago, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Whereas in the school, you're stuck with whoever the, 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 uh, the school basically has, where it could be the math teacher, the science teacher, could be the PE teacher. But it's, uh, it's much, much, much different. And the other thing is, is that you don't really have a culture of football in China like you do now in Japan because in Japan as well, we've got 54 professional J-League clubs from three different divisions and a very strong, healthy promotion relegation amateur structure as well. And um, in, in, in China, um, it's a different structure altogether. All, all so that there's, there, there are some uniqueness um, differences. But those are the two that stand out to me, the one-child policy, whereas in here, Japan, many families, you know, have one or two or three brothers and sisters. Um, so obviously, they're going to have much more, uh, much more opportunities to play with each other, to get a little bit more physical activity, chasing each other around. Um, and also, you know, maybe your brother or your sister played and, you know, they're the elder and you follow the elder child and you're always trying to play catch up, right? Mm. So there's, there's some differences. Yeah, whenever you go to, so your your experience of going to these different countries is is vast. But when you go to them, how much 
how do you get the balance right between embedding your work into their culture and then trying mm. to change the culture to put forward the game? It's it's difficult. It's very difficult to change culture, first of all. So you have to try to be clever enough to try to adapt to the culture that's in place and figure out, okay, well, what can I take? What are the strengths of the Chinese culture? Um, what, are the, what are the weaknesses? Um, uh, getting back to, again, sorry, one of the other comparisons. So in China, all of the football development is basically uh, overseen by the Ministry of Education. Okay, so you've got you've got different people. You've got academics, right? You've got these aren't football people. These are academics that are in charge of football. So that's another distinct difference between what's happening in Japan and what's happening in China and what's happening like, you know, a country like my own in America as well. So you've got three different models um, for how the game is organized. But getting back to it. Yeah, I mean, it's not easy, but there's certain things um, that were transferable from Japan to China, for example, the TV show. So when I was when I was when I was advising the Ministry of Education, I told them you have to have a media component. You've got a country with 1.3 billion people scattered all over. You know, the size of like a continent of like almost all of Europe. Um, so I convinced them to create a football corner um, that airs every single day, 365 days a year, at 6:15 in the evening until 6:18 in the evening, three minutes a day. And I designed that and I filmed it and I present it um, three minutes every day. And it's a technical corner. Um, similar, but to be honest, better than what we did in Japan. And then I also enlisted the help of David Beckham because of my work with Adidas. And I thought, OK, I'm going to do the I'm going to do the technical stuff. But why don't we get David to come in and be a part of the show because of his popularity and because we want to drive the eyeballs with the parents and the kids and everything. So that was a way that we took something and transferred it from Japan because we knew it worked here and transferred it to uh, to uh, China. And we're coming up pretty soon um with the one year anniversary that we launched the TV corner in Japan in China um so that that's one way you know um that just kind of thinking out of the box of of you know it's not just about coaching coaches education it's not just about you know finding the best potential talent in China and organizing it. my whole belief Gary is is that the way to make the best players better is by making the poorer players better they're the ones that push the best players to become better and I know you understand this, but for the listeners, so what I'm saying is if you've got a team of under 10s and you've got 20 of them and two or three are like really dynamite players and the other 16 or 17 are extremely poor, well, it's very hard to improve those other two or three players because most of the time, especially that mentality in many countries of, you know, win at all costs, you're going to play the best players a majority of the time. You're going to play them in their preferred position. They know that they're going to play. There's a lot of coaches that would play those kids even if they miss training during the week because they know they're the best players. So there's a lot of negatives that come from that. So my whole idea is lift the raise the bottom in order to basically push the top. And when I first came to Japan, the 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 best players at the professional and the national team level were just as good back in the 1980s as they are today. The difference is there were fewer of them. And today, there's more. So you can see, and when you can take, and, and this is at, at most levels, you know, even with the young young ones, but when you can take the best players and the poorer players and close that gap, that's where the magic happens. And that's where, you know, we've got this conveyor belt of players in certain countries because the player pool is so deep and that gap between the very best and the worst is very tiny. Let's talk about the, you know, in going and, and being a, a leader at, at the forefront of doing something different and being creative mm. with that there. These are all things that you have done in your coaching career. Mm. And it's, it doesn't come without criticism. It doesn't come without resistance. Mm. You sure. can tell by how passionately you speak, uh, but by also by your beliefs in what you say. Sure. Um, yep. how, how, how has your journey been in terms of you know dealing with criticism? Yeah, I mean, luckily... Over my career, I haven't had that much criticism. In fact, I probably have more criticism today by people who misunderstand what my beliefs are. So normally, if I've got enough time to sit down and go into depth of what my philosophy or what my beliefs are, I think I can win a majority of people over, right? Mm. It's the people who don't know exactly what it is that I'm about or what we're about 
that misinterpret or they just are misguided. They don't really quite understand it. But, you know, my whole my whole life and ch- and passion and and beliefs changed when I had my own children. Because, you know, we can sit there and we can try to develop and work and play and take credit and say, oh, yeah, this is my player. We developed this player, that player. But the reality is, is that the first and only time that I could actually say that I had a, 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 an enormous influence on any player was on my own kids. Because I saw from the time they could walk and I was able to put this philosophy and the strategy in place and I could see them develop along the way and I could start connecting those dots and these things like I told you about when my son crossed over the line into organized play, he had a coach that wasn't a real, you know, well-trained football coach, but he came from the rugby world. So I could connect these certain dots. I could go and watch training and see that the same kids on his team were getting the exact same training that he was getting. Um, but why is my kid really developing much better? And then it all started coming back to me again. It was that starting line. When you, you know, this whole idea we call the relative age effect, right? The RAE, relative age effect in, 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 in academia, where if a child is born at the beginning of the, of the cycle of the year, let's say January to December, January, and then it cuts off December. If your son or daughter is, is, is born in January versus someone else's son or daughter that's born in November or December, well, your son or my son is going to basically have about 11 month uh, advanced, uh, 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 you know, uh, learning, which is massive for like a six, seven, eight year old. So what I found was, is that because my sons were so good technically before they started playing organized football, it created a little bit of a technical relative age effect. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you from my experience, it is hard, not impossible, but very difficult to close that gap between the very best and the worst at those very young ages if you get a child who has mastered some degree of technical ability by the age of six or seven. Mm-hmm. So I believe in it. You know, So I'm not talking about it as if I think it's, um, it, that it's theoretical or that I learned this you know, reading a book or from a coaching stand, you know, course. I saw it play out, and I'm seeing these differences. And I'm, I've been studying these great players. I've, I'm studying players like Paul Pogba, where his story was in France, where his father was so concerned with how he was going to develop. As a small boy at four or five years old, he went around the neighborhood and started coaching the other kids just so that his son would have a competitive, good players to play against. <laughs> you get a story like um, you got a story like Neymar. Neymar's father went back to university to study physical education and kinesiology just so that he could try to develop an elite athlete. Now, I'm not saying that these are good or bad things, but there's some things that you can you can draw from. And when you see what some of the – Iniesta, his father was his first coach when he was four or five years old. And uh, also, I mean, there's just story after story after story like this. Same thing with uh, – with um, with Harry Kane, same thing with Lewandowski, same thing with Erickson from Tottenham. And you see these backstories and you start reading and understanding the role that the parents and the environment played. Um, it's very, 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 very clear to me about why certain countries or players make it to the very top and, and, and majority of them don't. Um, so, you know, not to say that everybody's going to play football to become an elite athlete, because I'm not saying that, but... I think, Gary, that the football world has missed something. I think that we've put a little bit too much emphasis on the coach. we put a little bit too much emphasis on this elite player development of picking winners and losers very early on. And I think that we haven't really figured out, when I say we, because I've just spent the last three years of my life traveling around the world. I was invited to Manchester United. I was, I was invited by Ryan Giggs, who wanted to see my presentation. And after I showed him my presentation, he asked me to show up to his restaurant the next day. And he had Gary Neville, Phil Neville, Paul Scholes, and Nicky Butt there. So I've seen the reaction when I show the presentation of my – and basically, Gary, what the presentation is, I've documented my both of my son's development showing on video, well, what did they do at two? What did they do at three? What's the difference between what a four-year-old can do and a five or six-year-old can do? And then I've also linked it to game clips showing, well, that isolated practice that the kids did on their own in the living room, how does that transform out onto the football pitch? 
So when I've shown it to people like Andy Roxbury, when I've been invited by the Bundesliga or Dortmund to present and, and, and Karl Heinz Riedel shows up um, to, to see it, or Dan Ashworth, the technical director from the English FA, or David Sheepshanks. I mean, I've gotten in front of a ridiculous amount of people all over the world that I've shown this. And I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back and say, you know, I'm the greatest coach because I'm not. But what I'm saying is, is that I've, I've, I've tried to um, expose myself to as much ridicule or at least as much criticism as possible. And I can just tell you from every I, I was invited to Tottenham Hotspurs by Daniel Levy and I presented to Pochettino, uh, who saw the presentation as well. So. Ajax, Ajax invited me, the academy director. He liked the presentation so much. The guys from Ajax personally drove me to the KNVB the next day, and I spent half a day there. So I know that I've found something that the football world, if you can get to the right people, that they embrace it. But I think that that piece of exposing yourself and, like you said, exposing yourself to ridicule, putting yourself outside the comfort zone, for yes. U, for US coaches, Tom, we're yep. because we look up. We don't. We look at Bob Bradley and we say, "Well, he went away to Swansea and and failed." Yep. And now, yep. you know, what's your advice to US coach to get out and do things and expose themselves to different way of thinking and challenges? Yeah. It, it, it is, but I think Gary also that we have to start understanding that in a country like America, where we have twenty three point seven million American children under the age of six. That's a huge demographic. Mm. Now, assuming that each have a mom and a dad, that's a market of about 70 million people. So what I'm saying is, is that, see, I'm not 100% convinced that in America, it's a complete coaching problem. I think that it's a problem that we don't have a, a good level of, of technical players um, at that critical mass. Um, and, and I think the coaching is actually quite good. But then, the, you know, the, the natural instinct or reflex would be, well, okay, well, if that's not a coaching problem, how come we don't have the players? Because if you look at Japan and Korea, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, a guy who spent 32 years in Asia here, I can tell you that a majority of the, the youth coaches that I know in the United States, and especially guys that work for the federations and the elite uh, uh, programs and the academies, they are head and shoulders better than a majority of the coaches out here in Asia. The difference, the Japanese players, the Korean players are much better technically. So you, you would question, well, how can that be? Because this is the this is the this is the the inconvenient truth. The reality for me is is that these special technical players are not the result of coaching. That's the reality of it. A majority, you know, I ran I ran probably the biggest commercial football school in the world here in Japan for many years. And I can tell you that a majority of the best players in my in those schools, we inherited them. We inherited them. Now, can we make them better? Yes. But very rarely you're going to be able to put your fingerprint, like I can at least on my own kids, and say I brought that. That kid came to my school, and he basically had never touched a ball, and he stayed with me for 12 years, and I developed him. Those kind of stories, they don't exist anywhere. So what I'm saying is, is that if we can raise the bottom, raise the base, and make sure and ensure that all American kids from the get-go don't bypass that critical technical phase from a very, very, very young age, well, then maybe these coaches that have done all their coaching badges and they have all their experience, they've done all their courses, they can actually do what they're hired to do, and that's coach. But when you inherit a bunch of 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old kids, they can't transfer the ball from the right foot to the left. They can't do a simple wall pass. They can't execute a basic overlap. But yet we want them to play the Barcelona way or the Ajax way. And, you know, that's why I'm saying let's think a little bit differently. And, again, don't get me wrong. I'm always for coaches' education. And, and, and you know, I've done all the coaching courses and everything myself as well. But all I can say is, is that in a, if, if you look at what's happened in China, China has invested hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars into football in these last few years at the top end. And it's a failed policy because they believe that the top-down approach. Now, here's the reality. You can hire and you can fire the best coaches and players in the world. They brought Capello, Lippi. Lippi is on more than 18 million euro a year. A year. 18 million euro. Now, you can hire and fire the best coaches and players in the world, bring them to your country. You can't hire and fire the parents. You're stuck with them. 
So again, that's a whole nother mindset of, of figuring out that can we start developing players that are just technically superior to the rest of the world in a country like America or, or, or whatever country that you're working in um, or, or that you're listening from. But to me, that's, that's the game changer because I've seen my son now who's been paired with an inexperienced coach for six years and I've seen him develop like I couldn't believe because he was technically good and he gets a lot of time with the ball at his feet. He's the best kid on the team, so they're always looking for him. So naturally, he's always the go-to guy. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but it's the reality. That's the reality of it. What, what would your... So, Kenner, to wrap it up then from sure. looking at... You know, we, we've talked a lot about federations and cultures. If, yep. we, if a, a director or if a club coaches is listening to this here and saying, okay, then I, I agree with it, but how do I implement it? What yep. advice would yep. you have for someone with a smaller level? Sure, I would say, and, and we're, we're, the good news is, is I'm engaged constantly, Gary, almost on a daily daily basis from coaches and associations and clubs um, throughout the United States just because I'm American as well. Um, and what I say is is that, you know, first of all, you've got to realize that grassroots football development, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. There's no program you're going to put in place where you're just going to turn, go over and turn the faucet on and the players are going to start dropping out. There's no shortcut. So you have to think of it more as a marathon. You have to think of it a long term, five, ten years out. So, you know, uh, the administer, administrators of the game, they have to be a little bit more creative. We have to be a little bit more innovative because now we have to fight to bring kids into our sport because there are many, many distractions so I would say keep on doing what you're doing, but maybe think about this. Try to think about compliment. Try to think about in your neighborhood, in your community, can you start engaging kids from a younger age? They could most likely be the, the younger kids from the families or the kids that are already in your club. Can you start a movement or can you collectively start creating a culture Here's a couple of things. First of all, football is not just a kicking sport. Now, if you go around, or soccer, if you go around the most parks in the world or in the United States on any given weekend, you'll find little children in the park with mom and dad, and the entry level for the game is kicking. So that's the first thing I say right there. No, kicking should not be the first technique that you're teaching the little three, four, five, six-year-old. So teach them more that it's a possession game, more of a just pull the ball back. Learn and teach your son or daughter to protect the ball from a very, very young age. You know, I met yesterday, I was with the CEO of Team Marketing, which is the marketing arm for UEFA, which basically they manage about $4 billion worth of, uh, of uh, Champions League sponsorship. Um, and I showed him the presentation here in Tokyo. And you know what he said to me? He said, you know what the best part of this whole thing is? It's simple. It's simple. It doesn't cost anything. It's just basically understanding and basically partaking that knowledge. That's not get get some small balls. Put them around your house. But you know, it, when you engage and you're playing with your small child around outside on the lawn or whatever, or if you're a club, start to try to you know see if you can improve the way that the parents understand what it is they need to teach kids. It's not a kicking. Don't get in front of the goal and just line up endlessly shooting the ball. Just try to get the kids to pull the ball back or get a small ball, small foot, learn to use the sole of your foot, learn to protect the ball. And I'll tell you, you'd be, you'd be surprised at how quickly kids will adapt and how quickly they become interested in playing with the ball and it becomes intrinsic because that's what you're looking to do. You're looking to turn on that intrinsic motivational switch where that child believes that they own their own free time and their own fun. Tom, first class. Thank you so much for your your time. Uh, no, your it's, uh, I yeah, I, th I thank you. Thank you for uh, I've been you know I've been following your stuff and a lot of your social media stuff for a long time now. So uh, I'm uh, I'm honored to be able to you know be a guest and and be able to chat with you. Oh, I appreciate that there, and I've just been your message and your passion and also your journey. I find I find really powerful and inspiring. I've I have a two year old here and. Mm -hmm. In doing my research for this year, I've been like, I've been cheering every time he boots the ball from one end of the room to the other. So uh, you've hey, you've changed, you've changed my house yeah. now. He's gonna be, he's gonna be doing turns and little drag backs, but he's not. Well, all you have it. to do is it. It really has to do with modeling. It has to do with the parent going. Now, of course, the natural instinct is to always kick. It's always to kick. 
But trust me, because I've done it now with two kids, um, it does, there's a switching point. And even when you teach kids basic skills to master skills, even at home, even they don't use them inside like training or inside games, don't panic. Because what's happening, and I just came back from uh, Lugano, Switzerland, where I was with a couple of the guys from the Belgium FA, um, who basically one guy who's like a specialist in like neuroscience. And basically he, he was explaining to me, because he comes from the academic world, I don't, but he was explaining to me what happens when a two, three, four, five-year-old starts that repetition of doing it over and over and over again, they're basically depositing that in their brain. And that basically gets deposited in the brain. And that's where when they become older, and these are exactly his scientific academic words, what happens when they become older is it becomes automated where they basically do these skills in a very subconscious way without even knowing that they're doing it. And that's the that's basically the byproduct of getting kids from a very, very young age and basically kind of, you know, nurturing them and conditioning them to play with the ball from a young age. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> All right, Tom, we've, we've made it one minute before the game's kicked off. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah i got to run downstairs now. <laughs> hey, Gary, let's keep in touch. I'd love to maybe sure. have another chat with you, you know, on the side anytime, and uh, we can exchange some more. Right. Well, Tom, thank you so much. <laughs> okay. We'll keep in touch. Okay, Gary. All right, okay, take care. Thanks so much to Tom for his time and his energy and his insight there. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, we all agree on the idea of producing technically better players, decision makers, where we probably disagree on a coaching community is how to do that there. So I just love Tom's idea of football starts at home, the idea of just challenging ourselves to think beyond better coaches, create better players. And we had Michael Beale, I think it was two weeks ago, when he was saying that it's the same thing, basically. It's not just producing. We look at the Iceland model and we think that if we can produce X amount of A-licensed coaches, we will produce world-class players. But that's not always the case. And, and especially when you look at the World Cup and the technical proficiency of these players, it is just on a different level. So I love Tom's message. I love how he was challenging. I loved how he shows creativity and innovation in his delivery. And I think that's huge today in, in coaches. It's not just information. Like I said, Tom Tom says it himself. It's not people don't disagree with him on his philosophy. Uh, where I think we can learn an awful lot from him is the drive and determination and forward thinking he has on looking for a TV show, on looking for a platform to send his message to the masses. And I think sometimes as coaches, we, we get on the pitch, we say our, our, our information and we think that everyone everything should be fine. And it's not, it's not that easy. So really enjoyed that from Tom and, and you can just tell how passionate he is about his message and that's why he's been so successful, I believe. Um, after that, I got into training and met Yuki and told Yuki that oh, I spoke to Tom and he told me to tell you hello and you want to see her face absolutely yeah he coached her when he was four the whole family knows him and you know, i had a five ten minute conversation with her about the impact that he had on her learning and the experience and it was just really f refreshing to hear about the enjoyment that he gave her at an early age in terms of that the the, the skill work the technical development how she learned to do what she does on the ball and now Yuki's towards the latter stages of her career and like I said in that interview she spends 30 to 45 minutes a day on technical work um, which adds up of course over a week over a year all that good stuff so um, and also yeah yeah it, um, the the part about challenging a culture that it takes 10 years to embed that there into a culture is something that we should probably take on board as well you know, we look at, at England, they're playing in the semi-final this week and we think that that's going to be, you know, that they changed their DNA quite recently, but quite, quite recently in terms of four, five, six years ago. So it's still in the early stages and I wish as coaches, sometimes we're looking for the quick fix. We've got pre-season starting now. You know, don't expect it in two weeks. Don't expect your team to change a culture 
inner squad culture or a mentality or a tactical identity in two weeks. It takes so much work. It takes so much time. It takes so much perseverance. Um, but the constant work at the process should be the enjoyment that you get from it. Um, and that's where I think where the fun is. So thanks so much to Tom for that. We'd love to hear your thoughts, coaches. Let me know uh, what you think. Uh, what you have an opinion on. Again, the development stage, I don't work at it, but I'm I'm really interested. I'm fascinated to see uh, what we're doing in the US, how we can drive player development forward uh, at every stage of the game, not just at the youth stages, but at the at the older age groups as well. So love to hear your insight. Uh, let me know on Twitter, at Gary Kernin, Instagram, at Gary Kernin. And then if you want to shoot me an email, Gary at modernsoccercoach.com. Thanks for listening. Like I said, this is a series of, of podcasts we have around culture, around the world, coaches who are doing different things, innovative thinking, creativity, forward thinking, risk taking um, with World Strides Excel. Um, and we'll have a few more coming up very, very soon. So thanks for listening. Appreciate your time. Have a great week. Talk soon. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions, and resources, Head on over to Coach Kerneen on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.